All right. Well, uh, Nancy, first of all, I just want to thank you again for the time. I know you have a lot going on. You have a book you're, you've been working on that's coming out here shortly. Um, welcome to the show. It's really nice to meet you and, and to be able to talk to you. Nice to be with you, Dan. Um, so I always like to start in getting background stories of how experts like yourself get into the field that they end up spending so much of their life devoted to. I know in doing research about you that you yourself are a fraternal twin, if I understand that correctly. Um, and your expertise is on twins and more specifically on identical twins. So what what is the background there? How did you get interested in the field generally? Well, you pretty much answered that question. I'm a fraternal twin and I was fascinated with the fact, even as a small child, that my sister and I were just so different. We had the same parents, we had the same home background and went to the same schools, but we were so different. We didn't look at all alike. Hmm. More importantly, our behaviors were so different. And I would see identical twins in my classes and they were so much alike and so close to each other. And I wouldn't say my sister and I were competitive, but we were just very uninvolved. We had our own sets of friends and our own sets of interests. And I sort of intuited before I learned about genes influencing behavior, I sort of intuited that something very fundamental about us had to be at work here. And I was always fascinated with psychology. And so when I got to high school and college, I learned about genetic influences on behavior and the whole world of twin studies. I was just hooked. It was just love at first sight. And that's been my career ever since. I just found more and more interesting things to explore in twin research. And I've never, ever been disappointed. When you first started investigating studies and learning about twins, twin studies, where was the research at that time? Was, was it widespread? Was there a lot available to you? What, what was it? What was the situation like just from a knowledge perspective at the very beginning? Well, there were twin studies out there, but certainly not the accumulation that we have today. When I first got into twin studies, it was probably in the late, um, 19, well, early 1970s, uh, early 1980s, something like that. And there were twin studies in progress, twin studies that had been published, but they were pretty much confined to the medical world and the world of psychology. But now we have twin studies in economics, in political science, in sociology, in so many fields, because people realize they can answer so many questions by adding a twin research perspective to the design. Yeah. I mentioned this before we started recording that to me, this field of study gives such an interesting window into human nature and the trying to answer the question of why people are the way that they are. Um, when you were first just an amateur and noticing differences between fraternal twins and identical twins, how similar did you expect identical twins to be versus fraternal twins? Were there, uh, I think people who know identical twins can tell there are both eerie similarities and gross differences between them. What was your initial intuition as to what that would look like once the research was actually fleshed out? Well, first of all, let me just define the twin research method very briefly Please. because you kind of hit on it. And it's a wonderful natural experiment, very simple, very elegant. You simply compare similarities between samples of identical twins who share all their genes, and you compare their degree of resemblance in some selected trait to that of fraternal twins who share half their genes on average. And if the identical twins are more alike, this is consistent with the genetic influence on that behavior. Now, I always expected identical twins to be more alike than fraternal twins, but I never expected 
it, them to be perfectly similar because yeah. the environment does play a role in everything. However, having said that, I will say that I am so impressed with the similarities of identical twins who were raised apart from birth who do not meet until adulthood. And we can talk more about how I think that comes about. But it's not perfect similarity with identical twins. And that's the interesting part, because then you can use those environmental differences or those environmentally based differences to try to figure out how they may affect non-twins in the population. Now, I, th- I like to think that I know as much about identical twins as fraternal twins. You kind of suggest <laughs> I know more about the identicals. But I, fraternal twins get short shrift in the literature and in the me- media, I think. <laughs> and we would not have the research that we have without them, because it's not so much the similarities in identical twins that impress, it's their similarity relative to the best control group there is, which is fraternal twins. And fraternal twins are fascinating because they're kind of on the spectrum of genetic relatedness, with some being more alike in some ways than others. And some fraternal twins look remarkably alike. And I've even in my life confused two sets of fraternals for identical, but given their DNA, identity. I mean, their DNA differences, I know for sure that they are fraternal, but they can look a lot alike. It's quite surprising. Just like two ordinary siblings born years apart can look alike or they can look quite different. Yeah. Related to identical twin studies specifically, if you could just, if there's someone listening to this that has never been exposed to the literature is not really clear on what we're talking about here. Explain what identical twins are, how they're created, what about them biologically is exactly the same, how that works. Well, identical twins result when a single fertilized egg divides somewhere between the first and 14th post-conceptional day. Hmm. And so they share all the genes in common. At least that has been the conventional way of thinking. But some recent studies have shown that you can have some DNA differences Um, depending upon what happens early on after the fertilized egg divides. But nevertheless, while it's not perfect genetic identity, it's as close as we're going to come. (laughs) And we don't really know what the significance of those differences are because identical twins still are so much more alike than fraternals in virtually every measured trait, but it's not perfect. Also, identical twins who share the womb may have two separate placentas, they may have a shared placenta. They may have a fused placenta. So there are lots of these different types of prenatal environments that can also affect the degree of similarity between identical twins. Hmm. You have now written multiple books about this subject over time. And I want to give you, there are, there are stories I'm familiar with that I am I'm interested in hearing more about, and I, I want to open the floor up for additional stories that you have that you have knowledge about that haven't gotten as much attention as, as some of the other ones. Um, you have a book, and correct me if I'm if I'm inaccurate about any of this, but the Columbian Brothers story, uh, which my understanding is it's essentially two separate sets of identical twins, two of which were switched accidentally at birth. You. Tell me about what's unique about that and what you learned, generally speaking, from researching those four boys. Sure. The Colombian twins were absolutely, I mean, it was a heartbreaking case to suddenly discover at the age of 25 that your family is not your family, that your twin brother is not your twin brother, but an unrelated same age individual you've been raised with all that time. So what basically happened was there was a pair of identical male twins born in Bogota in a very well-established hospital. 
And the day before that, another set of identical male twins had been born about 100 miles to the north in a very rural, um, poorly equipped hospital. And one of those twins was very, very sick. So his grandmother brought him at the age of one day to a better equipped hospital in Bogota. And there he was accidentally exchanged with a twin and the other pair. So you had two sets of unrelated brothers growing up in vastly different environments. So what's unique about this case is it's a double switch and it was not discovered until they were 25 years old. I have researched every documented pair of switched at birth twins. The only pair where there was a double switch was in Puerto Rico involving four females. Mm -hmm. But that case was identified when the girls were 18 months old and they were switched back, which was very painful because every mother and father had grown to love their child. So it was a very painful exchange, but nevertheless, it was discovered at a much earlier age. When I learned about the Colombian brothers, I knew without even thinking that I was going down to Colombia to visit them. I've actually been there twice. And it was phenomenal. What we saw was that despite the different environments and the 25-year separation, the personality traits of the real twins were so much more alike. We had one pair that were outgoing and diffusive and very sociable. And we had one pair where they were more introspective and less showy and much more thoughtful about the kinds of things they did. And even when it came to strange habits, you know, you can understand how how a male, young male growing up in the city might be very close conscious and have his eyebrows tweezed and his nails done. But a brother living in a rural area without running water, he was very fastidious about his appearance too. Mm -hmm. The other two boys, one raised in the city, one raised in the country, couldn't care less. They were in sloppy sweatshirts and T-shirts all the time. Now, when it came to cognition, to their yeah. mental abilities, we did see some differences there. And so the extremely different environments did overwhelm some of the genetically based differences. And this surprised me, Dan, hmm. because having worked with twins raised apart for so many years, I was used to IQ points of one or two points apart, something like that. And I expected that here. But because the city boys had gone on to get Bachelor of Arts degrees and were even in some master's programs, the boys in the rural area didn't go past the fifth grade. And so you cannot possibly compare those two. So we did see differences in educational background showing up in the intelligence test scores. But that's that's important information. And, and for someone like me who takes a genetic perspective, it was a good lesson yeah. in how environments can work. So yeah. it was it was a fascinating study overall. And you can't dismiss the emotional aspects of this too. As I said earlier, what a shock to discover that everything you thought about your life was just not true. And I mean, even your name was not your name. And so after, you know, some emotional reckoning that they all had to go through, particularly the switched ones, everybody is now friends. They have a common email address. They get along beautifully. They vacation together. I mean, they, they are really a lesson in how you cope with something like this, because it's not an easy undertaking. I read somewhere where you were quoted, uh, you just alluded to this, in uh, ha that case related to the difference in intelligence and educational achievement giving you pause in the sense that the different environments and the different educational opportunities seem to potentially play some role in their development as, as workers, as thinkers. 
this is an anecdote, right? This is an N of one. It's not a full-on study. But w- what does this clue you into, perhaps, if people who are familiar with these identical genes, identical twin studies are potentially biased towards the role of genes and not environment? What did that teach you? What, what, how did that make you pause in terms of your thinking about the role that environment may play in certain circumstances of people's personality and development? Well, you could think of environment at two levels, a kind of... Um, middle class, or at least where educational opportunities, libraries are available to everybody. People can go on to, everyone completes high school, community colleges are available. But then you can think of these other types of environments, like the Boca brothers had, where one set went on to usual educational backgrounds, and the other didn't go past the fifth grade, which is quite unusual. So there, it gave me pause because it wasn't as if in the, in the normal run of things, the twins have different environments, but they, they they sort of gravitate toward th- similar things in their environments. So all of us, Dan, have opportunities around us. We can't possibly take advantage of all of them. We go to certain places. We go to certain people. We go to certain events because we like them. We enjoy them. We find them fulfilling. And so we believe that most identical twins raised apart do the same thing. They are attracted to the same types of things. But with these Bogota brothers, the ones in the rural area had no opportunities for these things. They couldn't possibly carve out environments the way the other ones did. Now, you're right. This was an N of one. I'm never going to have a case like this again. But one of my colleagues at the University of Virginia, Eric Turkheimer, did a study on identical and fraternal twins raised in impoverished environments. And he looked at their intelligence and he found an overwhelming effect of the environment there. So- I mean, it's not just an N of one, but it's other studies that confirm that extreme environments can overwhelm individual differences. Yeah. Yet at the same time, some of these stories are absolutely fascinating that there's the the gyms, right? The two gyms that I believe were, they discovered around the age of 39, if I remember correctly, that they had an identical twin brother out there. Uh, I was reading this this morning. Tell me about the circumstances related to them, of the similarities related to them when they met that are eerily alike. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say I don't consider them eerie. I consider them scientific data because we see these kinds of similarities in identical twins that we don't see in fraternals. So I think there's something at work. We just don't know what it is. So having said that, the Jim twins were both smokers of Salem cigarettes. They both worked part-time in sheriff's offices and in McDonald's. They both had light blue Chevrolets. They both took vacations in the same three block strip of beach in Florida. Amazingly never met. They both bit their nails to the nub and they both had a mixed a mixed headache syndrome that developed when they were in high school. And the way they described it was so much alike, like somebody beating on their head with a hammer. I mean, really painful. They both had also gained about 10 to 12 pounds as adults. And you know, they both kind of thought that, well, maybe it's because I'm not eating right or I'm not exercising. But they realized having met their twin that their bodies were changing in similar ways. So meeting your twin gives you a whole other way of explaining the changes that you see in yourself. They both had married women. Now, this is this is one that's kind of interesting that I really can't explain. <laughs> they both had married women named Linda, divorced them and married women named Betty. And then one divorced Betty and married Sandy. And so if twins lead parallel lives, I guess the other Betty was getting a little worried there if they ran into a Sandy. <laughs> but but you can ask yourself, you know, is there some genetic component to that? Are people attracted to certain names? 
Now, one thing I will say about the Jim twins, they both named their sons James Allen, one with one L and one with two. And so why is that? Is it the, is it the sound of the name? Is it they want to maintain tradition and name the firstborn son after the father? And certainly naming a child is a function of the mother and the father. But but who knows? I mean, we don't know what the mechanism is that drove that. But with identical rear-to-part twins, it gives you a new way of thinking of things, all new, fresh hypotheses that you can start to think about. Yeah. Fascinating. There is an, an, a, a crucial component to these studies and... I think anyone who's interested in understanding identical twins immediately gets some exposure to epigenetics and the role of epigenetics in development of any human being. Um, for Again, for people that this is their first exposure to identical twin studies, that they're not particularly familiar with uh, how identical DNA, how, how people who are essentially coming from the exact same set of DNA could develop into different types of people as they age. It's obviously extremely complicated how that works. It also seems like epigenetics plays a crucial role. Mm-hmm. And my understanding of what epigenetics is, is it's basically turning the knob up or down in the expression of certain genes. You can explain this far better than I can. What what are epigenetics? What what role do you think they play in the identical tw- in identical twins and in people generally? Well, epigenetics, as you say, refers to turning on or turning off of genes, whether a certain gene is expressed or whether it isn't. Um, just to give you a simple example, think about people who have an allergy to polio. I mean, think about people who have an allergy to the polio vaccine. Hmm. Let's say, all right. So, um, if they never in their life have a vaccination they're never going to have the allergic reaction. So that gene is never expressed. But if they are vaccinated, then they will. So epigenetics kind of works that way. If there's a certain environmental exposure, it may turn a certain gene on or it may suppress that particular gene. So when we see identical twin differences, one thing we can think about is, do they have different epigenetic profiles for those particular traits where they differ? And that's where twin research can apply to everybody and help us understand certain changes in our life. I wouldn't say that epigenetics turns people or turns identical twins into different people. Now, having said that, we know, and there are some cases where you have one schizophrenic twin and one who was not, or one depressed twin and one who was not, or one twin with a particular medical condition like Alzheimer's and the other one does not. So epigenetics may play a role there. Um, It may have to do with the distribution of how certain genes and certain cells occur. prenatally. But these are fascinating processes. But yeah, epigenetics is the turning on or turning off of genes that may affect expression. It's not a change in DNA. Yep. It's not a change in DNA. Yeah. Yeah. And the there's the, the case, I, I remember you also mentioning in an article I was reading about you related to, uh, I believe they were identical twin sisters, one of whom developed very serious breast cancer mm-hmm. and another who didn't. And uh, again, I think as an amateur hearing that, that seems very confusing as to how it's possible for that to happen. How do you explain that given how complicated this is? What, what are your general thoughts on how something like that could, could be the result for two identical twins? Well, I can think about a couple of explanations. I could think about one having perhaps a higher susceptibility to the condition due to various environmental exposures, maybe at work or some event they went to where they were exposed. Um, that's what I can think about. And something just triggered that predisposition. 
you know, if you, it, what's amazing is that as, as alike as identical twins are, say the similarity rate for schizophrenia is only maybe 40, 45% for identicals, uh, for multiple sclerosis, same thing, diabetes, same thing. I remember hearing about a pair of twins who had diabetes and well, one had diabetes, one did not, but it ran in the family. And the one who was affected had a certain virus for a while and the diabetes emerged right after that virus cleared up. So something got triggered in that twin as a result of that exposure. Hmm. There, uh, you have a new book that's coming out later this year, and I'd love to spend ample time discussing that. And I, I think for people that are familiar with your book, they probably got interested in it, at least in part, through the documentary Three Identical Strangers, which introduced me, for example, to this study that was conducted in New York City, which I believe was initiated in this early 60s. Um, Tell me about how you got interested in the project generally and what you knew before you really delved into the research. So I knew about this twin study, very controversial work, by the way. I learned about it first in the early 1980s. I was a brand new postdoctoral fellow with the University of Minnesota, excited to work on the study of twins raised apart. And when I got down there, I remember that everybody was talking about this New York City twin study from the 1960s because 60 Minutes on CBS was poised to do an expose because these were twins who were purposely separated and then they were studied. They were Their development was followed until they were 12 years old. And so I remember hearing all about that and being horrified, but also intrigued because it was not the kind of study that I or any of my colleagues would ever do. I mean, the idea of separating twins and in, in Minnesota, we did everything we could to bring twins together. So it was completely the antithesis of what we believed was right. And so over the years, I began to follow it. I, I began to read about it. There were a few articles about it. Um, Larry Wright, the journalist, sure. he wrote uh, an article in the New Yorker magazine about many aspects of twin studies, but touched on that. So I began to, to research this. There was a, a colleague, not a close colleague of Peter Neubauer's, the, the, who was the psychiatrist behind the study, um, who I, I ran into. And in her book, she had mentioned, in her book, she had mentioned a reared apart twin case, but she said it was totally different than anything that he had worked with. But I was still interested in talking to her and she knew a lot about Neubauer and she learned, a, a, she knew a lot about Viola Bernard, his collaborator. So it wasn't as if I worked on it all the time. It was it was here and there. I met one of, of the research assistants. That was very, very fascinating. So my interest was always being rekindled. And then around uh, 2004 or so, I went to the Columbia University archives and I found Dr. Bernard's archives that were open. Some of it was closed until just early this year, <laughs> but a lot of it was open. And so I went through some of her twin research material. Those people who don't know Dr. Viola Bernard, because she was not mentioned in Three Identical Strangers, she was a psychiatric consultant to the Louise Wise Agency that separated the twins. And she was of the belief that twins are better off being raised apart because they can develop their own identities and because they would not inflict overburdening on their parents. She claimed the child development, the literature at the time supported that. It does not. And I go through into that in great detail in my book. But at any rate, that's what she thought, and that's why twins were separated. So then in 2017, Lori Shinseki, a film director based in the Washington, D.C. area, did a documentary film that I was involved with called The Twinning Reaction. And that was followed in 2018 by Three Identical Strangers, directed by Tim Wardle. And so 
Lori in particular kind of said to me, you're the best person to do this book. <laughs> and so I thought about it, but I wasn't sure. And then um, I found that after Three Identical Strangers came out, wherever I went, whether I was invited to lectures or I went to social gatherings, people were asking about this movie. And I, I was expected to provide all the answers. But I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so then I was convinced that it was time for me to do it. And I really felt then that I could do it better than anybody because I had that background in twin research. And so I did it. And it was an amazing project because I felt that as an author and as a scholar and as a psychologist, I really grew. I stretched my boundaries because I was very used to, well, I'd done six previous books. And when you're doing a book on twins, everybody wants to talk to you. <laughs> but here, because the study was so controversial, some of the colleagues who were still around didn't want to talk. And at first, I was kind of miffed by that till I realized that's information. Yep. Why don't they want to talk? So all of that is in the book. I mean, it's, I have many, many aspects. I have interviews with every pair of twins that were studied, if not direct interviews, material on them. And I have comments from lawyers and ethicists. I have a lot in the background of the twins. I have a lot of their plans or their, their refusals to be involved with media exposés. And um, yeah, so I think the book is really the complete story. Not totally complete, nothing ever is. Yep. But I think it's as complete as you're going to get within 500 pages. <laughs> what do we know about the genesis of the, I think it, you said there was the WISE agency, right, that was involved in, in separating these kids. Do, do we know at this point what they were up to, why they were interested in, in conducting this research? Was it purely scientific or was there some sort of financial angle from their perspective? This is a very murky area, Dan, because the conventional understanding was that the twins were separated and being separated anyway, and then an opportunity arose to study them. Uh, and then, of course, the interest in studying them kind of fed the separation policy. I mean, after all, at this time, in 1960, when the study began, there was one published study of reared apart twins, 1937, from the University of Chicago. Hmm. But they studied adults who, who met you know, in adulthood. This study in New York was, was like a researcher's dream where you would study infants, newborns, who never had any contact. I mean, I'm not excusing it. It's unethical. There's lots of experiments I could think of that I'd like to do, but it would be completely unethical. I could yeah. never do it. I wouldn't want to. But at any rate, so... The conventional wisdom was that they the twins were being separated anyway, so why not study them? But having talked to a lot of people and having given this a great deal of thought, I'm not so sure which one came first. It could have been the idea of studying them that fueled the agency's separation policy. I just don't know. I'm leaving it as an open question right now. Hmm. The book, I assume, is either close to done or is done. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what you concluded from delving in there. I know at the end of Three Identical Strangers, for example, a lot of the documents were still being locked up, I think, at Yale and were inaccessible to the general public and even uh, twins who had been a part of the study. What do we know now? Is that information now unlocked? Were you able to get access to those files? I was unable to get access to those files. These are still secured at Yale until the year 2065. Viola Bernard's archives, which does contain, contain some of the twin research material, are at Columbia, and they opened early this year. But in my inquiries to the archivist there, 
they're only being made available to Columbia University residents because of COVID and, and things like that. And I haven't been able to travel. So I'm going to have to wait to take a look at those and I can get back to New York City sometime. But um, yeah, the, some of the twins have gotten some of the material, not all of it. I mean, keep in mind that every pair, every individual was studied very closely over the first couple of years of life. Yeah. And then you know, maybe once or twice over the years until they were 12. So there was material on their intellect, on their personality, films, pictures, observations, all kinds of testing. It's a, we don't really know everything that's in there. We really don't know. Yeah. My guess though, is that there's nothing in there that's going to really shed light on anything new. I mean, we have all kinds of twin studies that are available with better methods, uh, better materials. And I think that there's really nothing new. That's my guess that we could retrieve from that. The other thing I worry about is that if researchers were to gain access to that and actually analyze it and publish it, what kind of message does that send? Does it send a message to future researchers that, well, you shouldn't do anything unethical, but you can go ahead and do it anyway, and people will use it years later? Yeah. I don't think that's right. I don't think that there's anything in there that is going to be particularly meaningful or particularly um, new yeah. that we can find. This will be a bit of a spoiler alert about that documentary, but I, I know the argument was being made in that documentary that of the three boys that were separated at birth, uh, each were placed in a slightly different socioeconomic environment. Uh, one in a blue collar family, one in a working class family, one in an affluent family where I believe that the father was a doctor. And they, of the three boys who reconnected, I think in their 20s, the most uh, gregarious. They met at 19. 19. Okay. Um, they formed a bond. They opened up a restaurant together. They were hanging out all the time. Then there was a rupture in their relationship. The, I think by the other two's testament, most charming, most gregarious, most likable of the three brothers ends up committing suicide. Um, and there are different theories being posited by people as to what is going on there. And I think it's extremely complicated, I would imagine, to be able to pin down what may have caused that. There was a person in the documentary who was making the argument that because his father was a strict disciplinarian, that had played a role in his uh, psychological issues as he aged, and that she thought that that was partially responsible for the end result of his life. Uh, how do you read that? You watched, I'm sure that you've seen that documentary. What was your assessment of that? Well, it's a good question and a very complex issue, as you say, and I do deal with it in quite a bit of detail in the book. I think it's not any one factor that we can use. He was the more gregarious, more outgoing, more most likable, I guess. But he did have that very strict father and always felt that it was a poor match between himself and his adoptive family. Keep in mind that their mother also had some psychiatric issues. Yeah. Um, if you remember in the film, one of them said they were minor. Well, maybe not so minor. <laughs> uh, so that's that's one thing. And it could be that the other brothers' home environments buffered them against that to some degree. You also have to remember that when the brothers, one of the brothers left the restaurant, that was a big blow. Because perhaps not feeling a fit in the family made the triplet relationship that much more important for that particular triplet. So when the, when the one brother left, I think that was a real blow particularly to him. And then David's father, David's father, who they nicknamed Bubala. Yeah, right. Yeah. So he 
um, was kind of the glue that held them all together. And they spent most of their time at David's house. So when he passed away, that was another blow that I think perhaps Eddie was a little more sensitized to than the others. So I think it's a confluence of these environmental events and the genetic predisposition. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if the other brothers sometimes ask themselves, you know, Eddie, but why not me? You know, and under uh, I mean, who knows? I suppose Eddie had been adopted by Bobby's. We don't know. Yeah. I want to get a little philosophical here. And I, I know you have fielded, it sounds like, many questions in academic circles and social circles. I, I think people probably come to you because they're interested in human nature and why people are the way they are. And you have spent a career delving into that. I guess I would like to start going in this direction by just asking you how your research has changed, if at all, the way you think about yourself. And uh, as a caveat, for I'll, I'll give some additional context from, from myself, where I definitely feel like I was raised in a family that had a more of a blank slate-ish philosophy on parenting, that you can kind of become whatever you want, that if you work hard enough, you can you can achieve whatever you might aspire to to want to achieve in this world, which I think probably really helped me as a person just reach for uh, for goals. But the more that I have learned about the power of genetic inheritance in your maybe upper threshold for capacities in, in life, you know, whether it's height, if I'm interested in playing basketball, whether it's intelligence, if I'm interested in being a physicist, that there probably is a place for a reasonable discussion and reasonable expectations for people based upon their natural gifts. Uh, that's a long way of maybe re-asking that question in terms of how your study has affected the way you look at yourself and also just society in general and what is a, a, a moral and a reasonable way to try to raise the next generation of, of kids, for example. Well, in, in terms of myself, remember that I knew about genes before I knew what genes were all about. Yeah. I saw the difference between my sister and myself. And so everything I learned from twin studies confirmed exactly what my intuition was. So I never had a problem with that. Now, I don't like to talk about genetically setting limits, really. Uh, but what I try to tell people is that is that we can all improve, but we all just can't be the same. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a much more reasonable way to think about it. Also, our genes don't dictate things to us. For example, we know that the divorce has a genetic component to it, mm-hmm. but our genes don't tell us to divorce. Uh, maybe they underlie difficult personalities, which get into the, into the way of relationships, but we make the decision to divorce or not. And we have so many opportunities available to us, so many things that we can do and take advantage of. And our genes don't tell us which ones we decide. Now, there are some limits. If, if I were um, someone very, very young and six feet tall, I probably, as a female, would never become a, a gymnast, right? Because the gymnasts yep. have to be about five feet. So there are, there are some limits like that. But basically, um, you know, it's interesting that you were raised in a blank slate kind of, uh, kind of opportunity. Well, something about your personality thrived on that, but you can imagine another child being overwhelmed by that. Hmm. Different children respond very, very differently to the same set of parenting practices. Um, so, hmm. yeah, I think that that 
What's good about the research showing genetic effects is that parents don't feel so responsible. I think parents have felt so pressured to provide the best play group and best education and, and best summer camps in the idea that they want to do everything that's best for the child. But I think that in some ways, children bring up parents, not the other way around. Children will let you know in their own way what's best for them. So I think that parental responsibility really lies in being sensitive to the talents and interests of your child, nurturing those, discovering the weaknesses, and perhaps trying to get the child over those types of things. Yeah. I think it's an important point. And uh, I, a colleague of yours or, or someone who's also an evolutionary psychologist, Jeffrey Miller, I've, I've heard him mention on uh, a, a podcast I was listening to a while ago that in his judgment, you know, the most important thing if you can do if you want to have great kids is to mate with somebody who's a great person. Uh, it, because the power of that, of your genes in passing that along to the next generation is, is so important in who that person is likely to become. Um, is that something that resonates with you? Um, yes and no. Um, because children do inherit traits from their parents, but you never know what the mix will produce. Yeah. You can have two great parents and have a problematic child. And I think that parents should have realistic expectations. Parents say who are two PhDs should not expect the child to necessarily become an academic scholar. The child may not be, may not have any interest in that. So I think that parents have to just kind of let the child talents unfold. And this is what I mean by children bringing up parents. I think that's really the way things work. And, and if you ask parents, if you ask parents of one child, they say they're environmentalists or they claim to be. But parents of two children realize that what worked for child A doesn't always work for child B, and they're more along the lines of genetic perspectives. In yeah. fact, this was very clear to me when, for one of my books, I spent some time with a, a woman who had conceived quadruplets naturally, four boys, and two set, one set, were, uh, two sets were identical, but they were fraternal to each other. And so, she wanted to treat them all the same, but she found that the identicals in each pair were just so much more alike and it was easier to treat them alike. So she ended up following the dictates of the kids. Yeah. I think that's an important point you just talked about in terms of the two PhD parents that have these expectations that their kids are going to be just like this. I remember watching this when I was a kid of parents who were great athletes and having an expectation and almost demanding that their son be interested in football or basketball and kind of live out their past life again. This seems to be in terms of outcome related to probability, not certainty, right? You're more likely to have an intelligent kid if both of your parents are PhD academics, but it's not a guarantee. Is that your understanding of how people should be thinking about this? And what role in terms of probability does, you know, intelligence versus conscientiousness play? Do we have a handle on which of the traits are more genetic versus environmentally influenced? Well, if you look at the genetic influence on general intelligence, it's about 70, 75%. And what I mean by that is not that a person's intelligence is carved into a 75% genetic part and a 25% environmental part. No, it means that if you were to give an IQ test to people in a population, you're going to see individual differences, variation, and 75% of the variation is tied to genetic differences among them. Hmm. Now, but in an individual case in that population where intelligence has a 75% genetic effect, you might have a child who's completely impoverished. And so that that particular number doesn't mean a whole lot. 
when it comes to conscientiousness, one of the big five personality traits, the genetic effect there was about 50%. Mm-hmm. And I think that the conscientiousness does play a role, certainly in, in educational attainment. Although I know I know students, being a professor myself, I know students who never come to class and they still do well. So who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, individual cases are exceptions. You know, children handle information differently. But I mean, to say which is more important is, is difficult. Individual cases are murky and you know, we just don't have that kind of predictability available to us. Yeah. You know, th- these studies are becoming more numerous. It, it seems like knowledge about identical twins and the role of genes is, is percolating in the culture more than maybe it was 20 or 30 years ago. But it's a, as you have mentioned a couple of times, it's, it's complicated. Uh, the details are, are play a, a large role in, in what is actually true. I'm wondering what you consistently hear, if anything, that uh, misunderstandings about your field or corrections that you seem to consistently make about conclusions the you know population in our civilization have about the work that you do and, and to clarify what is true based upon the knowledge that you have. I guess what irks me more than anything is when people just refer to twins. I mean, you have to be so careful to refer to identical fraternal opposite sex, which also fascinating cases, but they also were underplayed. We have a fascination with the identical twins. There's no question about that. So I never like to lump twins as a group. I think you've got to always make a reference to twin type. There seems to be a misunderstanding among some scholars, I think, and probably some members of the public, that twin studies are only for twins. And that's not true. Twin, you can look at twin research in two ways. One way is as a model for understanding the genetic and environmental influences on behavior. And so for that, in that level, the, the findings from twin research apply to everybody mm-hmm. with a few exceptions, but they, they have wide applicability. And then you can look at twin research that is only for twins. What is it like to be a twin? What is the parenting like? Why do twins have excess language disabilities, which they tend to? So there's this whole other area. I tend to go back and forth between the two of them because I just find it all so fascinating. But there are people who concentrate in one or the other. And then I have colleagues who only look at big databases and they never see a twin. And I find that really sad because to me, when you're in a room with a pair of twins and you're hearing the story and watching them and you can see how they're just identicals, just so coordinated and with fraternals, how different they are. Uh, that's where you get new ideas about things. And it, it's just so fascinating. Every pair of twins to me, whether identical or fraternal, is a unique twist on human nature and can really get you thinking in all kinds of novel ways about why we are the way that we are. Hmm. You've mentioned you going to cocktail parties, and this is a question I, I love to ask, which is when people come up to you and, and begin to learn about what you do, and they ask you what the most interesting fact or information you have in the vast field of your your discipline, what are your go-tos? What what to you are the real mind blowers in, in your field of study? Well, one of them, I'll, I'll tell you one that's research-based and one that's anecdote-based. So the research-based one is that identical twins raised apart or as alike in personality as identical twins raised together. And that is a very counterintuitive finding, but one that we found and one that colleagues have since discovered as well. 
And so what that tells us is that to the extent that you're similar to family members and personality, it's not because you're living together. It's because you share genes in common. Now, environment plays a role, but not shared environment. The environment that's critical in personality formation are the unique environmental effects you have apart from your family, such as maybe you took an exotic trip or you had a particular trauma or you won the lottery or something like that. Those, that's what we talk about. So that to me was, was amazing when we first discovered that. And then the anecdotally, there's a pair of twins I've written about fairly frequently, Jack and Oscar, who uh, were raised apart, having been born in Trinidad to a Jewish Romanian father and a German Catholic mother born in 1933. And after six months when their relationship soured, the mother took Oscar with her to Nazi Germany, where he was in the Hitler Youth and became very um, pro-German. Not, not a Nazi. He was 12 years old when the war ended, but he was in the Hitler Youth and liked it because he could play sports and get out of going to church. And the other brother, Jack, was raised Jewish and spent time in an Israeli kibbutz. And so when they were reunited at 21, it was a very cold reunion because they didn't speak the same language and they'd had such different experiences. But are you still hearing me? Yeah, I am. I'm just a little okay. shocked by the story. Yeah. Okay. I couldn't tell if the screen froze or not. Should I say this again? No, no. I think we got it. All right. But then they met again when they were 40 and they were in the Minnesota study of twins raised apart. Now, what fascinated me most when I spoke to Jack was Jack said that if our positions had been reversed, we would have ended up embracing a philosophy and a history that we currently despise. Hmm. And that's quite true. I mean, where you are born, I think, makes a big difference. You know, you're born in the U.S., you're born in, in Germany or, or wherever you're born. You tend to adopt the culture of your country and you don't necessarily embrace all the beliefs. Uh, Oscar did not, but he was very pro-German. He questioned Nazism when he was older and all this sort of thing. But had their positions been reversed, Oscar would have been raised as a Jew. Yeah. It would have been a completely different thing. And you know, actually, I made this point um, in, a, in the New Yorker magazine about, oh, I don't know, a couple of months ago, there was this fascinating article by Joshua Rothman on living alternative lives. Hmm. And I sent a letter in that actually got published saying that the only people who really can see themselves in a life unlived is an identical twin raised apart. I mean, all of us can imagine what it would be like if we married somebody else or took a different job or went to a different school. We can imagine it. But these twins can actually see it. Yeah. And that, to me, was one of the most shocking and yet uh, impressive takes on what it would be like had you been raised in a different environment. I have to imagine parents, friends of yours who are parents also must come to you for child-rearing advice, too. Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> What is the general advice that you give to parents? Is it what you alluded to earlier, which is that you need to have a unique understanding of your individual child and cater to their talents and personality? How do you how do you broach that subject with parents that come to you? Yeah. Well, it's mostly parents of twins who come to me. Mm. And one of the major gripes, which I get all the time, is that the school wants to purposely separate the twins so they have individual experiences and have their own identity. And the parents as young twins say, the kids get along great. Let's keep them together. Why traumatize them? They have to leave the home. They have to leave me. Why leave the twin also? And I agree with that. And I think that you should not have a blanket policy. 
You simply take each pair as it comes. So I tell them, tell the teachers, be creative. Put them at different tables, different play groups. Then they're still in the same room, but they have different experiences. So that's that's one thing. But I mostly get uh, inquiries from parents of twins. I, I get them all the time, and I answer every single one. I shouldn't say that on podcast. I'll become a helper. <laughs> but I answer. I do answer every one, and I learn a lot from them. And I and some of the some of the questions I use in my research. So um, I even write articles about it. So anyway. Um, Depending on the pair, you know, the bottom line usually is to pay attention to each child and let them go their own ways. Uh, but sometimes one pair will need a little more separation. One pair will need a little more closeness. It just depends on the twin type and on the circumstances. But basically it's, you know, what's going on is fine. Just monitor it and, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. I would imagine another theme that comes up a lot in the questioning of, of people when they learn about what your expertise is, is related to their own free will, right? Their own capacity for altering their, their life. And I would bet this is a subject you've spent a lot of time thinking about. And again, as somebody who was mostly raised in an environment personally of pure blank slate, or that being the theme of my upbringing, that was a, uh, you know, that was a component of life that I held as a real truism until probably college philosophy classes where I was just confronted with evidence that I had never really considered before related to, you know, what might be bounds on my own ability uh, to be different than I actually am. Then getting exposed to the identical twin studies and seeing so many of the similarities, not the same, but a lot of the striking similarities between these kids that get separated or just the development of identical twins in, in normal families. H how do you think about that yourself, um, both as a person and for people that come to you for advice or thoughts about how you view that? Well, you're talking about free will. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So uh, I don't think knowing the genetics has an effect in any way deprives people of free will. Because as I said earlier, we make the decisions to divorce, to go to this school, to marry this one. We make those decisions. The genes may predispose us, lead us in a direction, but ultimately we have many, many options that we can pick and choose from. Now, I think that being told that life is a blank slate and you become anything, I mean, that may work for some kids, but you can imagine that for some kids who believe it, take it seriously as yep. you did, then maybe they try and try and try yep. and they're not succeeding. And that can be very, very frustrating. So, you know, a lot of it just depends on the child. I and mean, there's no there's no one way to do things. You really yeah. have to tailor it to the individual child and yep. individual twin. As a society, right? I mean, we're we're trying to create, I think most Americans would agree, a fair and reasonable civilization where people can become the most that they can be, right? Equality of opportunity while at the same time recognizing that there are differences in people's personalities and their gifts that are given to them by nature. When people come to you with questions about how to craft a just society while also recognizing differences in people that are inevitable, how do you approach that? How do you think through what, what is the right way to approach that, generally speaking? Well, I think that that the idea of equal opportunity is what's most important. I think that anybody should be able to do anything and take advantage of anything if if they're interested. And if they're good at it, they'll probably stay with it. And if they're not, they won't. But I think, again, we need to impress upon people that we can always improve in things. We just can't all be the same. Mm -hmm. 
And if we were all the same, I think life would be pretty boring and our population probably wouldn't last very long. We all had identical endowments and interests and abilities. So I think that's really the way to handle it. Um, Diversity is great. And it, it makes it makes life interesting, I think. Where do you see this going in in the next decade or two, right? I, I was reading this morning about some potential scientific options related to, I think it was epigenetic editing in in human beings. And this is, I think, a completely new branch of science or a relatively new branch of science where uh, I think mostly for health purposes, there's a, a possibility of being able to improve people's quality of life and, and general health. Where, where where's this where's this all going? What are the potential human benefits related to the knowledge we're gaining from genes and identical twins? How how could you see the future unfolding that might help uh, future generations or even people like us who are alive today? Well, I think it's mostly in the medical realm, particularly when it comes to single gene conditions. The problem is that you know we don't know it's substituting a single gene or altering a gene, how that will affect the rest of the genome because genes act in an interactive fashion. So, I mean, we know that science moves forward. It doesn't move backwards. And Mm -hmm. so whatever we know about and are able to do today, we're going to be able to do much better tomorrow and even more tomorrow. So science moves forward. Um, There are going to be people who abuse the system for sure. I guess the difficult part is when parents want to create a child or edit a child to make them more intelligent and more attractive and things like that. And I think that, that that's just getting into some uncertain waters. We don't know again, how changing certain genes are going to affect the rest of it. And plus, when you think about complex traits like intelligence and personality, I mean, there's no single gene effect for that. Um, People who have looked at genes underlying intelligence often find a whole suite of genes that may affect intelligence, but each one has a minuscule effect upon the general outcome. So we're a very far way from that. And I think our best efforts now are concentrated in the medical realm. If we could eradicate Huntington's chorea, that would be great, or multiple sclerosis, that would be great, or fragile X syndrome, all those would be just great. Hmm. You mentioned science progresses, right? It, it moves forward consistently over time. In your lifetime, in entering this field, what do we know now that we didn't know when you first entered? Well, we've certainly seen the great proliferation of reproductive technologies, helping families who were childless with fertility difficulties raise families. And it was in 1978 that the first test tube baby was born, Louise Brown, in the UK. And I remember that People said, well, this is going to be the end of the family structure as we know it, and this is the end of everything. But, you know, now in vitro fertilization is, is a very common practice. And while doctors used to implant several embryos in the woman's womb with the hope that at least one will survive, now, depending upon her medical history and her age, they can usually have a successful outcome with just one. So, and there, and then other reproductive technologies have been developed since then. So that's that's a huge change that I've seen right there. Hmm. And I think that that's that's a good one. And it's also increased the twin population, which is another good thing. For me. <laughs> um, as we wind this down, I want to just go over a, co- a couple other issues with you. Um, I know that you know, you do a lot of these interviews. You're a public face for this field. And you have spoken to a lot of journalists. You've given a lot of public presentations. 
What is a question, if there is one, that you wish a journalist, an interviewer would have asked you that you haven't yet been asked so that it could reveal a piece of knowledge, something fascinating for you that you think is important for the public to understand? Well, I wish that that researchers would, or I'm sorry, I wish that journalists would think more about the unusual sibships that are being created through adoption and through the reproductive technologies. And I'll give you some examples of these because I studied them and find them quite fascinating. So aside from the Switch at Birth Brothers, um, I study a group of children called virtual twins. And virtual twins are same age, unrelated children raised together from birth. So what they do is they recreate twinship, but without the genetic link. Mm. And, and they're very, very close in age. And they come about in two ways, mostly, but there are some odd exceptions. The main way they come together is if parents adopt two children at the same time. Um, another way is if the mother is having difficulty conceiving, so she undergoes in vitro fertilization. And as she's about to have a baby, the adoption agency comes up with another one. So they're raised together. And they are fascinating because they give you a pure estimate of environmental influence. Mm -hmm. So they add another approach to the same class of questions. And another interesting kinship I study, they're not a kinship, it's the relationship, I guess I'd call it, Mm -hmm. are unrelated lookalikes. And unrelated lookalikes are fascinating because some people have, scholars, have challenged the idea that genetics affects our personality. And they say that if you look at twin studies, people react to the way the twins look, and that creates their personality. I think that's ridiculous, but I wanted to really show it scientifically. So I reasoned that if I could find unrelated lookalikes, if they were as alike as identical twins, okay, yes, then this critic is right. But if they're very different, then I'm right, and it's the genetic influence that's driving their personality. There is a a photographer up in Canada, Francois Brunel, whose hobby it is to take pictures of these lookalikes, and they are amazingly similar. So he was able to collaborate with me, and I got data on these individuals and got some others through a British television program, and their personality correlation is close to zero. Yeah. So, So what that teaches us is that while identical twins may be treated more alike than fraternal twins, they evoke the same kinds of treatment from others due to their genes, what we call reactive gene environment correlation. So I think that all these unusual kinships are fascinating because it takes us beyond twin studies, but it still addresses the same class of questions. And there's other odd kinships too that that we can talk about. Are there areas in this field that you think will always remain a mystery that are really outside the realm of scientific inquiry and are, are kind of outside of the capacity of the human mind to be able to fully understand? Well, there's two questions. They're within the realm of scientific inquiry. I just don't think we're ever going to get an answer. Yeah. One is, when at what point in their development do identical twins really know their twins, and when do they really feel that close bond? Mm-hmm. We see them together in cribs. We see them together in the playgrounds. We see them interacting all the time. But when they're one year old, you know, they're not going to have that sense of togetherness. Although I know there are cases where if one leaves the room, the other one starts looking around. So they're aware of each other as social beings. But I'd like to know that moment. The other thing is that despite all of our research, Dan, we don't know what causes the fertilized egg to divide. Mm -hmm. We don't know. We have theories about it. We don't really know. And I think that that's something I would like the answer to. We also don't have the answer to uh, 
why do some twins have two placentas and why does one have one and what causes them to fuse? It used to be thought that separate placenta were linked to earlier splitting and common placentas were linked to later splitting. But that theory is very much challenged. And what's so interesting, and I go th- into this in one of my other books called Twin Myth Conceptions, is that that this whole theory was put forth in a kind of hypothetical way, but because it made so much sense, it was adopted and became kind of truth. And many people quote it today, but if you look back, it's, it's really never been confirmed. Hmm. Last question I want to ask you is for people that are interested in further understanding your expertise, your field, obviously there are books that, that you've written that we'll include in the show notes that they can go and access and, and look into. And I know you've given a TED Talk that people can watch. Who are the other luminaries in the field? What other books are um, relevant and important in your mind or documentaries, media in general, that people can pursue to, to get a better grasp on this field, even if it's just from an amateur perspective? Well, I think that in addition to the movie Three Identical Strangers, the movie The Twinning Reaction is great, too, because there's some overlap, but there's also some unique material on that as well. Uh, I don't know if that that movie is widely available in this country, but you can Google it and there are excerpts that are certainly available. Um, in terms of, of other books and things, I really love, I love historical documents and I love the books done by the other Reared Apart Twin investigators. I mentioned the study in 1937 by uh, Newman and, and Company from the University of Chicago. There's another book by, um, Jewel Nielsen that came out in the 1960s, 65, I think it was, where he talked about his Danish reared apart twins. And there's a book by James Shields about his British twins, which came out also in the 60s. Now, these are older documents, but twin data doesn't age. Mm-hmm. And though, what's so nice about those books, Dan, is that they have data, but in the back, they have biographical stories. And so they're fascinating. And you can learn so much by reading those. Another book that I really like is called The Twins Who Found Each Other uh, by Lindman. And it's about one particular pair of twins, Roger and Tony, who met when they were 25 and what it was like to meet and their similarities and differences. It's it's fabulous. It, it's, mm. I just love that book. Then there's another book. Again, I, I love this old stuff. <laughs> Sorry about that. But there's a book called um, He Was Not My Son. And this is the first documented case of switched birth twins that happened in Switzerland. And it's written from the perspective of the mom who actually had identical twin boys and didn't realize that she was raising one of her identicals and an unrelated child. Another identical boy was being raised in another family cross town. Mm-hmm. And so she she writes about all sorts of stuff, their observations and things. And then she gets into the part where they discover this other boy and then what happens. And it's so painful, but so, I mean, it just grabs you. I, I could not put that down. And then one other book, is by journalist John Calapinto Hmm. called As Nature Made Him. And this is a fascinating case. Identical twins who were born in Canada. And when they were maybe, I guess, a year or so old or something like that, they were having trouble urinating. And so the doctors advised that they have, um, um, what's it called? Some, I can't remember the name. It's a common surgical procedure, but at any rate, so... They did it, but they they used a, an electric uh, machine instead of a knife. And so they burned off one child's penis completely. And the <sighs> parents were, were advised to, to treat that yeah. boy as a girl and have him surgically transformed. 
again, it's a heartbreaking case, but it's well worth reading. It's riveting. I could not put that down. I mean, they were, you're getting me going. And all, all <laughs> this, can I mention one more book? That Please, I really, of course. Um, it's called, uh, oh God, what is it called? Um, it, it's about, it's about a pair of identical twins born in Hungary and they were born to a Jewish family, but one became a Catholic priest and hid in Italy all through the Holocaust. And the other one was at Auschwitz. And when they met, of course, it was not a good meeting, but it's also fascinating because they went back and forth in terms of their religions. So, yeah, it was an amazing, there's lots of great things out there. I have yeah. to say. I, I have heard of this story. I, I think you said it was a Canadian uh both both boys twins the where there was the surgical error and the attempt to raise one of the two as a as a as a woman um what is the end result of that i mean it's it's a, a crazy and tragic story but what what did we learn from that experiment well first of all it was it was heartbreaking and very tragic what happened was this poor boy who was raised as a girl never felt like a girl at all and it, you know, was a tomboy and ostracized and, and all of this. And then eventually when he was 14, the truth came out. The parents told him he was relieved. They were afraid he'd be angry, but he was relieved and quickly transformed back into being a boy. The other brother was in complete shock and felt that their whole life had been a lie. As time went on, the twin who was transformed married a woman who had children and seemed to be doing well, had a job. Meanwhile, as this is going on, the other brother develops schizophrenia and eventually committed suicide. And then the brother who was transformed had marital problems. I don't know what caused this, but he also committed suicide. So it was a very, very tragic ending. But, but I think in some ways, the most difficult part of their story is that you could never get the truth about that case. The doctor who engineered it all, John Money, from Johns Hopkins, he never reported the real results in the literature. And one of my colleagues, Dr. Mm -hmm. Milton Diamond from the University of Hawaii, was asking questions about this case all the time. He just could not believe that you could successfully change, you know, an 18-month-old from a boy to a girl. It didn't make any sense. And so after all the years of looking, he finally ran into a social worker in Canada, a, a, psychi a psychiatric social worker, I think it was, mm -hmm. who knew the case completely. And he was just too nervous to talk about it and was afraid of, of incurring the wrath of his mentor, John Money. So it took the two of them together to write an amazing article hmm. with the truth. It's one of the things I admire about your field is its fearlessness and its commitment to the truth and unapologetically seeking that out wherever it leads. And some of the conclusions that are reached are disturbing to some people uh, and are unwelcomed to people who have certain beliefs or ideological bents. Do you find pushback in academia, in our society to inquire in the way that you do and your colleagues do into really the big questions of life? And what can we as citizens do to help protect you guys, uh, to allow you to, you know, to continue to ask the big questions and to do the research that give, give us all a better purchase on our own human nature? Well, certainly twin studies in particular and any genetic finding in general was quite controversial 
particularly when it came to intelligence back in the 60s and 70s. Anybody who dared study those topics or sex differences that might be biologically based ran the risk of ruining their career. And by the time I was doing this kind of work, that kind of approach to research was becoming more accepted. On occasion, I'll run into somebody who thinks that everything we do is environmentally based, but it's been it's been pretty rare. And I think it's a way of presenting the answers that genetics plays a role, but it's not everything. And I do find that people who take a generally environmental perspective often use terms like chip off the old block. And you know what that means, it really means that like father, like son, or like mother, like daughter, even like grandfather, like grandson, which skips generations between people who've never met. So um, I think people are more genetically attuned than they realize. People tend to have no problem with genetics when it comes to medical or physical traits. When it comes to behavioral ones, that's where things can get a little bit dicey. But I think that's really been changing quite a bit lately. I mean, particularly, as I said, twin studies have been invading, but happily invading, fields like political science and sociology and economics. And, and so many people who might have been resistant previously are being much more accepting now. The panic that can overwhelm people where you were saying, I think in the 60s and 70s, it was uncouth, it was unseemly to investigate ge the genetic influence of intelligence or other personality qualities and traits in human beings. And that subsided by the time you got into academia. You know, I, I'm aware enough of the academic world now and I've interviewed enough academics who are pushing the edge of knowledge to realize that some of that paranoia is still around. Where does the where does the panic come from? I mean, what's the big fear, do you think, from the people who are opposed to the work that you're doing? Well, first of all, I didn't mean to say that it had gone away by the time I was sure. in academics. It okay. had somewhat, but it certainly was, pres was present and still is prevalent among some people today. Um, I think the fear that people have is that they're stuck, that the genes stick them at a certain place and they can't change. And I think that what we need to educate people on is that some traits are more genetically influenced than others. I mean, try as you might, unless you get contact lenses, your eyes are always going to be blue. But, yeah. mm. but, but things like ability, athletic skills, intelligence, I mean, all kinds of things can be modified. So you're not stuck with anything. You know, conscientiousness and stick to do play a role to a large degree and, and can change things. So I think th the idea is in educating people about what this is all about. You know, just like I think the journalists in general have not been, done a good job when they start throwing percentages around, like 75% this or 80% that, without explaining what that number actually means. And I think we talked about that earlier today. I think it's important to underline that. And if you could maybe just articulate again what, what you mean by that. Yeah. And, and what bothers me sometimes is that some journalists and some scholars actually will toss the number around without really explaining what it means. And I think there's the impression that 75% of an individual's intelligence is linked to their genetics and the rest in the environment. But in point of fact, it means something totally different. It means that if you were to measure intelligence in a population with a test of some kind, you'd find that 75% of the variation is tied to the genetic differences among the people with the remainder due to environmental effects. And it could be that one member of the population was dropped on their head as a child or had no education. And so uh, their intelligence level would be largely environmentally influenced. So it can vary on an individual level. It can vary in terms of how, how much the, the influence is. And I would imagine that's also applicable to all traits, 
that it, it, it can vary. It's not it's not like conscientiousness is fifty percent all the time. It it varies based on individual ba- an individual basis. Yeah, and if you do a study, say in another country, you might get a higher or lower percentage. I mean, just depending. Yeah, yeah. In the population I, age things can vary. Nothing set in stone. I would guess a lot of this is related to statistical uh, comprehension and uh, and fluency, right? Because these are macro studies, and you need a degree of understanding related to these to the data sets that are being used in order to accurately describe what's going on. Is that is that fair? Yeah. Well, certainly you need some statistical expertise, but these are not complex concepts. It's the problem that you need to take the time to just explain them very simply, which I think I've tried to do today. Yeah. And that's what it is. Yeah, and it's always a little simpler and more controversial if if you say something simple, right, and and don't go into detail and explain it. Um, well, I want to just close by thanking you so much for the time. I know you are extremely busy, and you are the nation's expert on this field. Um, I have been interested in this subject just as an amateur for a long time. Um, and I, I'm honored that you would take the time to, to speak today uh, and make this information available to the public. It's, it's an honor for me. Pleasure for me too, Dan. Thanks, Nancy. Thanks.